Hi, this is Hannah Langdell and Nick Olick, Duke Plastic Surgery Residents with The Resident Review, a plastic surgery podcast. Today, we'll be continuing our quick hit series and discussing hand tendons. Nick, do you want to get us started off with some of the anatomy? Let's do it. Um, so we're going to start with some anatomy and some physical exam maneuvers. So Elson's test is used to uh, as a quick way to diagnose a central slip injury. Um, for this, you have a patient's PIP flex 90 degrees over the edge of a table. And you ask the patient to extend the PIP as you uh, resist at the middle phalanx. The DIP will extend if there is a central slip injury due to volar supplication of the lateral bands. So typically, if there's no injury, the DIP will remain lax due to lateral band laxity. Next, we have the quadrigo effect, um, and this results as excess distal pull on one profundus tendon, um, since the small ring and long finger share a common muscle belly. Shortening of one tendon causes decreased excursion of the others and decreased grip strength. This can be due to amputations or fusion at the PIP, as well as adhesions of the FTP. And the index finger, uh, this is better tolerated um, as it has an independent muscle belly. The lumbrical plus deformity is paradoxical extension of the PIP through the lateral bands when attempting to flex due to disruption of the FDP, distal to lumbrical origin, or a distal amputation. And treatment for this includes division of the lumbrical tendon, resection, or division of a lateral band where it attaches. Next, we'll talk a little bit about extrinsic versus intrinsic tightness. An extrinsic tightness uh, would be noted in cases where MCP flexion limits a patient's ability to flex the PIP. Whereas intrinsic tightness would be the opposite. If a patient has a reduced ability to flex the PIP when MP, MCP joints are extended, you uh, start thinking about intrinsic tightness. So let's talk a little bit about extensor anatomy. Uh, the extrinsic tendons provide digital extension to all three joints, while the intrinsics flex the MCPs and extend the IPs. So the zones, the extensor tendon zones, you just, we start at the DIP with zone one and you move proximally, I always kind of think that the, uh, the odd number zones are over the joints. So zone one over the DIP, um, zone two over the middle phalanx, so on and so forth. Um, and zone seven is the extensor retinaculum. Extensor tendon repairs are, uh, outcomes are worse in zone three and zone six. Uh, the juncture tendinum are tendon-like bands that connect the long ring and small finger EDC tendons. Uh, so if, the long finger, for example, if the EDC is lacerated uh, proximally to these structures, the structures will allow the uh, extension of the digit to still occur. Sagittal bands aid with extension of the MCPs. And if you have a sagittal band rupture or an extensor tendon injury, you can use a relative motion extension splint. This keeps the tendon at 15 to 20 degrees um, more in more extension than the other digits. Extension at the PIP is produced from extrinsics through the attachment through the central slip, as well as intrinsics through the lateral band. Extension at the DIP is also produced by both extrinsics through direct attachment of the terminal tendon and intrinsics by the conjoined lateral bands proximal to the DIP. Extension of the MCP by pull of the EDC and the EIP and EDQ as well is through its attachment to the sagittal bands. The intrinsic extensor mechanism is via the middle band of the interosseous muscles. Also, this also inserts on the dorsal base of the middle phalanx and causes extension of the PIP joint. In an open injury, the central slit may be injured without concurrent injury to the interosseous muscle tendon. This means that the patient will still be able to actively extend the PIP joint, even though there is disruption of that central slip. 
The oblique retinacular ligament connects the flexor tendon sheath volarly to the terminal extensor tendon dorsally. When a patient sustains a laceration to the extensor mechanism over the body of middle phalanx, the oblique retinacular ligament may prevent the occurrence of an extensor lag and a mallet deformity. Nick, awesome job. I think that's probably the hardest part of this episode is going through intrinsic, extrinsic on ligaments. So nicely done. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's definitely something that requires kind of constant review. Um, Some deformities that we get commonly tested on and that we actually talked about in our indications conference today, um, the boutonniere deformity. This is when you have flexion at the PIP and hyperextension at the DIP. This results from a loss of extension force at the PIP leading to palmar migration of the, the conjoined lateral bands secondary to triangular ligament insufficiency. So you can see this from a central slip injury from a laceration or an avulsion, um, as well as attrition from chronic inflammation in something like rheumatoid arthritis or a burn, um, really anything that can disrupt that central slip. This results in a flex position uh, of the uh, PIP by unopposed flexor force, leading to palmar migration of the lateral bands and leading to a concentrated extensor force of the DIP. This can lead to that boutonniere deformity, which can become fixed. Uh, Usually the main complaint is the hyperextension of the DIP. As far as treatment, there's several options. First would be conservative management, including hand therapy and a corrective orthosis um, to obtain full passive range of motion. You would split the PIP in extension and leave the DIP free for six to eight weeks. Uh, Then you should initiate uh, DIP range of motion exercises. There's several options operative interventions, um, and the goal is to relocate the lateral bands dorsally. Uh, the Fowler procedure is surgical lengthening of the terminal tendon. Um, this addresses the DIP deformity. You also have dorsal repositioning of the subluxated lateral bands and or repair or tightening of the central slip. And this would be a Littler procedure. PIP contracture release involves releasing the volar plate, which is done at a separate stage, at least three months apart. And if there is arthrosis, you can do an arthrodesis or arthroplasty. Complications include incomplete correction, recurrence, uh, overcorrection of the DIP, stiffness, and chronic pain. Uh, So for central slip injuries in general, um, an acute central slip injury is typically treated non-operatively unless in the rare case of a bony central slip injury, which can be treated with a cerclage wire. For a subacute injury, you'll have a loss of active extension and passive extension restriction. You could attempt uh, to address this with conservative management first, including splinting or serial casting until you have supple, passive, correctable joint range of motion. And then you could think about some operative management. For a chronic central slip injury, prior to reconstruction, you can make sure you have passive mobility and soft, supple tissues. For a chronic and stiff uh, central slip injury, you can consider capsular release. And then at three months, you can consider uh, tendon reconstruction. Another deformity that we are commonly tested on is the swan neck deformity. So this is kind of the opposite where we see flexion at the DIP and hyperextension at the PIP. The etiology here is the loss of extension at the DIP or overpull of the extension force at the PIP. For example, the loss of terminal tendon like a mallet finger or crush injuries of the DIP. Uh, this may be caused by a laceration or closed avulsion from a blow with an outstretched digit or in the case of rheumatoid arthritis, again, you may have attritional injury to that uh, terminal extensor tendon. So there's uh, several different etiologies we think about for development of a swan neck deformity. Um, you could have a laceration um, or a closed avulsion from a blow with an outstretched digit. Th- and this could be uh, 
or attritional rupture in rheumatoid arthritis. Um, you can have increased pull at the central slip in rheumatoid arthritis or spasticity um, or intrinsic tightness. You can have volar subluxation of the MCP joints um, in RA, and this can lead to increased pull of the central slip. You can have loss of pull of the FDS from a laceration or a rupture. Um, laxity of the volar plate can lead to stretch and rupture with time. And over time, this deformity may become fixed and arthrosis may develop. The clinical presentation is the inability to flex the PIP, and this can become locked in hyperextension. Uh, the patient may need manual flexion um, in order to correct this and may have some weak grasp or pain from arthrosis. The physical exam you should check active and passive range of motion and see if this deformity is passively correctable because this may help guide your treatment. Treatment options include conservative options like hand therapy, corrective arthrosis, um, and try to maintain or obtain that passive correctability. Extension block orthosis can correct the PIP hyperextension and progressive extension orthosis for the DIP correction. Yeah. Some operative techniques uh, to address the swan neck deformity. Um, for the PIP, you can perform a lengthening of central slip, perform an intrinsic release if they're tight, or a FDS tenodesis for tightening of the PIP. So a Fowler central slip tenotomy helps to rebalance the extension mechanism so the terminal tendon can extend the DIP in a chronic mallet finger. Um, the tension on the lateral band also extends the DIP, and this procedure involves tenotomy of the central slip and lateral bands. An orthodesis or arthroplasty um, can be performed if arthrosis uh, exists. And for correction of MCP subluxation, this can be corrected with an MCP arthroplasty. Hannah, you want to go into some tendon transfers? Yes. So in general, when you're thinking about tendon transfers, you need to consider what tendons are working, what tendons are available for transfer, and what functions are needed. Um, and you need to remember to maintain at least one wrist flexor. So in terms of matching, you need to consider the uh, tendons that have similar capacity, amplitude, and direction. And then you may want to consider staging transfers. So determining the tendon junction sites and the proper tension are really the most important parts of this surgery. So the junction sites should be either proximal or distal to the extensor retinaculum. And you need to maintain the retinaculum to prevent bowstringing. So when you're tensioning these, Having it a little bit too tight is better than having it too loose. When it's too loose, the only remedy is to go back and have another surgery. If the transfer is a little bit too tight, this can be corrected postoperatively with dynamic flexion or with uh, dynamic flexion for extended extension transfers or dynamic extension splints for flexion for flexor transfers. Um, you often do a pulver taft weave when you're uh, doing these transfers, and this involves at least two weaves at 90 degrees to each other. So now we'll talk about the different types of transfers. So direct tendon repair after six months with a tendon graft is often not possible due to fibrosis and shortening of the muscle belly. And so that's one of the reasons you may consider a transfer. Also, if a patient has a high radial nerve palsy with no return of function in six months, uh, you may want to then move on to tendon transfers. So for the brand tendon transfers for wrist extension, you'll use pronator teres to ECRB. For thumb extension, you'll use palmaris or EIP to EPL, or you can use FDS to EPL. 
Um, keep in mind that FCU and FCR can be used for both thumb and finger extension. For digital extension, often you'll use FCR, FCU to EDC. And for proper tensioning, you set the end piece at 20 to 30 degrees of flexion. Um, one disadvantage of using FCU is loss of important wrist stabilizers, and this may have inadequate excursion. The uh, cascade tends to have more tension on the index rather than on the small. So just make sure that when you're doing these transfers that you tension, uh, tension this equally. And then finally, you can use FDS as well for finger extension. For patients with AIM palsy, the exam will reveal paralysis of FPL, FDP to the index, and um, paralysis of PQ. And you evaluate PQ with resisted pronation and elbow in full flexion. So one option is an FDP to FDP side-to-side -side transfer uh, in which you remove the peritinon, or you can do this end-to-end -end with a pulver taft weave. Um, another option is to perform an FDS of the ring to FPL. And this is an ideal transfer as they have very similar excursion forces. If a patient has Volkmann's ischemic contracture and as a result has finger contractures, oftentimes this is typically due to fibrosis of the FDP muscles. So you can do end-to-end -end FDP to those that are working. For a chronic FPL laceration, um, one option is to fuse the IP, another one is to do a transfer using FDS of the ring finger. Well, now we'll move on to talking about tendon injuries. So first we'll talk about acute flexor, flexor tendon injuries. Uh, so the way that these are often categorized is by zones. The flexor tendon system of the hand is divided into five zones. Zone one is the area distal to the FDS insertion at the uh, mid of the middle phalanx and only contains FDP. Zone two is the area from the FDS insertion at the mid portion of the middle phalanx, proximally to the A1 pulley at approximately the level of the distal palmar crease. Zone three is the area between the proximal aspect of the A1 pulley and the proximal aspect of the origin of the lumbrical muscles from the FDP tendons. Uh, so this is the distal portion of the transverse carpal ligament to the distal palmar crease. Zone four is the carpal tunnel, and then zone five is from the muscular tendinous junction distally to the proximal edge of the transverse carpal ligament. So just keep in mind, remember that FDS flexes the PIP, is innervated by the median nerve. FDP flexes the DIP and the PIP joints. This is uh, the median nerve innervates the index long finger. The ulnar nerve uh, innervates the ring and small. The FDS slips insert on the mid portion of the middle phalanx while the FDP continues through the fibrosis sheath to insert on the volar base of the distal phalanx. Digits have fibrosis channels uh, lined with synovium. Both FDS and FDP travel through uh, these sheaths. So there are five annular pulleys and three cruciform pulleys. And these are numbered from proximal to distal. Uh, so the a1 pulley is over the MCP. A2 is over the periosteum of the proximal phalanx. Then there is the C1, the first cruciate. A3 is over the palmar plate of the PIP, followed by C2. A4 is over the periosteum of the middle phalanx, followed by C3. 
and then uh, A5 is over the polymer plate of DIP. So A1, 3, and 5 are over the joints, and 2 and 4 are over just bone. And just know that rupture of 2 and 4 are most likely to lead to bow stringing. So FDS is superficial to FTP at the entrance to the digital sheath. FDS then divides into slips that wrap around FDP and become more dorsal. And the two slips then rejoin via fibers of camper's chiasm. So A2 can rupture in rock climbers or gymnasts, and this is treated with supportive measures and ring splints. And I will never forget this one because someone asked me this on an interview once. What was the most common injury in rock climbing? Um, I okay. nailed it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no comment there. Okay. Now we'll talk a little bit about uh, the exam. So when you're examining a patient in the ED, you want to make sure that you get a full exam prior to giving any local. You can use cap refill and two-point discrimination for your neurovascular exam. If there are any questions, you know, just grab a pulse ox and a Doppler. Uh, you'll want to note the location of the laceration, the resting position of the hands and digits. Uh, you'll test FDS by examining isolated PIP flexion of each digit and with the other digits held in full extension. You test FDP by asking the patient to flex the DIP while holding uh, the PIP in extension. And then especially with patients, if you're considering a flexor tendon injury, you want to make sure you tenodice uh, by flexing the wrist. And this should extend the fingers and patients who have intact tendons and then extension of the wrist will flex the fingers. So in terms of treatment, this is by and large tendon repair. And in terms of the technique for this, the strength of the repair is increased by a higher suture caliber using stiffer materials and more coarse strands. And then after you do your core sutures, you'll do an epitendinous suture to improve the biomechanical strength. And this also minimizes gapping and helps to reduce the cross-sectional area for gapping. In terms of the knot location, there's been a lot of literature looking at biomechanics and the strength of the repair. Uh, the knot should be an outside knot. Some do the knot inside, but the strength has been shown to be less initially. And the most biomechanical strength is using a 3-0 locking suture repair. With a four-core strand suture, one centimeter, one centimeter from the cut end, and the epitendinous suture is about two millimeters deep and two millimeters back from the cut edge. The most common core stitch is a cruciate. Um, however, locking has been shown to be superior. And then a taper needle is preferred. Uh, now we'll talk about uh, some variations with different zones. So if you have a zone one injury, which is an isolated FTP injury or an avulsion injury, one example of this is a jersey finger. So this is avulsion of the tendon from the distal phalanx or a fracture of the base of the distal phalanx. Uh, most commonly, the ring finger is involved and the mechanism of injury is a sudden hyperextension moment applied to a finger with the FTP in maximal contraction. So these fractures or injuries are classified with the Leddy classification. So in type one, the proximal tendon is retracted into the palm and you'll have disruption of the venicular blood supply. So early repair is important. So for type two, the tendon is retracted to the PIP joint. And in type three, there is avulsion of the tendon with a bony fragment. And the bony fragment usually is entrapped by the distal edge of the A4, the A4 pulley which prevents further retraction. Uh, you can 
use uh, suture buttons for repair. Uh, other options include using suture anchors or pin screws if it's a type three bony avulsion. Zone two is known as no man's land due to historically poor results of tenant repair uh, in this zone. And you should repair the tenon if there's greater than 60% of tendon injury in terms of the cross-sectional area. If less than 60% of the tendon is disrupted, then you should debride the cut edges to prevent uh, tendon catching at the pulleys, but there is no absolute indication for repair. Zone three, this is usually as a result of complex injuries due to the proximity of the neurovascular bundles. Uh, remember, too much advancement can cause a lumbrical plus deformity, which is paradoxical IP extension with attempted forceful flexion. Zone four, these are rare because the tendons at this zone are protected by the transverse carpal ligament and the carpal bones. Uh, injuries in this zone very often involve the median nerve. Um, as it is the most superficial structure in the carpal tunnel. And next is zone five, and these can be repaired within three weeks. After this, the musculoskeletal unit shortens and has to be reconstructed, or the patient may need tendon transfers. Uh, flexor tendons in zone five have the best prognosis for repair. And remember, this zone is proximal to the carpal tunnel. And in terms of flexor tendon rehab principles, for zone two, the outcomes are still marginal and often require tenolysis and joint capsular release, and ruptures occur in 6% of repairs. At six weeks, the tendon repair is 20% stronger than surgery. So even at six weeks, you'll need to coach the patient that their tendon repair is still not very strong. In terms of rehab protocols, there are you know, many different protocols. One is the Duran protocol, and this is uh, passive range of motion, and the patient will passively perform exercises under therapist supervision and includes post-operative orthosis, including extension block with IP extended. The Kleinert modification of the passive motion protocol, uh, for this, elastic bands are attached to the digits nails and pass under a palmer hand pulley to the wrist. For an active motion protocol, um, all controlled motion protocols are designed to provide excursion without gap formation. This is unlike passive, which depends on externally applied forces to produce tendon gliding and adhesion prevention. Early active motion protocols are best for range of motion, but they do have higher rates of rupture. And you need at least a four core strand repair in order to recommend an early active motion protocol. Uh, low force and moderate Excursion therapy is the best protocol following uh, flexor tendon repair, and early active motion may limit in softening and loss of repair strength that occurs after the first seven days. Uh, so for tendon grafting in children, you will need complete immobilization for at least four weeks. And in general, you do not perform tenolysis until four to six months out from the tendon repair. And universally, hand therapy is the first line of treatment. Next, we'll talk about the boys' preoperative classification. So this is a scheme that can be used as a tool to assess the need for either a one or a two-stage repair. The indications for a one-stage repair include a properly healed wound, full passive range of motion, absence of significant scarring, an intact pulley system and tendon sheath, preserved neurovascular function, and absence of PIP joint flexion contracture, upon initial wound exploration. Uh, 
So if all of these conditions are met, that's grade one. And if these conditions are not met, that can be anywhere from boys grade two to five. Uh, patients are generally better candidates for two-stage reconstruction if all of those conditions are not met. Rupture of repaired tendons. This most commonly occurs four to six weeks out. Uh, the treatment will be exploration and re-repair. And a stage reconstruction is used for tendon rupture if passive range of motion is limited or if there is no sheath. MRI is the best diagnostic criteria if you're unsure of the clinical exam. And then re-repair is ideal, but if you're not able to do this, you could consider transfers and grafting as secondary procedures. So if you're doing a stage repair, stage one would be pulley reconstruction over silicon rods, and then stage two would be tendon grafting. In terms of the choice for donor tendons, uh, Palmaris longus is an ideal uh, choice because it, because it is extrasynovial and it is good for distal finger to palm. It is good for transfers from the distal finger to the mid palm and also has minimal donor site morbidity. The plantaris is also extrasynovial and requires, but it does require leg dissection. The toe extensors are extrasynovial, but again, does require leg dissection. The flexor digitorum longus is intrasynovial, and usually the second toe is used. The palmaris longus is readily accessible and available in about 85% of patients and has little morbidity, and it's appropriate size for most fingers. Uh, in general, in, intrasynovial has less scarring adhesions, but may have length issues and extrasynovial tendons are easier to harvest and preoperative ultrasound is good at determining if the plantaris is an intact, determining its location. Nick, do you wanna go through some of the extensor tendon anatomy? Let's do it. Um, so let's talk about this in the context of uh, some of the tendonitis uh, syndromes that we see. So the anatomy of the extensor tendons, we think about the six dorsal compartments um, so the first compartment is APL and EPB, and this, these are involved in Dequervain syndrome. Next, you have ECRL, ECRB, involved in intersection syndrome. EPL in the third dorsal compartment um, can have chronic rupture in a non-displaced distal radius fracture. EIP, which is the most distal extensor uh, muscle belly. And EDC, this makes up the fourth dorsal compartment. Uh, this may... Uh, you may see mid-dorsal wrist pain in piano players. Uh, in the fifth dorsal compartment, EDM is involved in Von Jackson syndrome. And ECU, you may see snapping ECU syndrome. So each compartment has uh, their own kind of unique uh, pathology. So as far as the, the first dorsal compartment and the Quervain syndrome, um, the first compartment, again, contains APL and EPB, which run through a rigid tunnel. Uh, the base of the tunnel is formed by a groove in the radial styloid where, where the roof of the tunnel is formed by the extensor retinaculum. The APL is larger and has multiple slips. The EPB is smaller and more dorsal. It also has a more distal muscle belly and is often contained within its own subcompartment, uh, which is a frequent cause of dequervains and also uh, leads to a greater likelihood that a patient will not respond to corticosteroid injections. Uh, as far as clinical evaluation of this condition, um, patients will present with radial-sided wrist pain that is exacerbated by lifting or grabbing. They'll have tenderness over the first dorsal compartment near the radial styloid. Uh, and this is compared to interse intersection syndrome, uh, which patients will have tenderness five centimeters proximal to the wrist joint. 
So a good way to differentiate these two. Um, as far as physical exam maneuvers, the Eikhoff maneuver, uh, the patient grasps their thumb inside a clenched fist and ulnarly deviates the wrist. Or Finkelstein's maneuver, um, which in which the examiner grasps the patient's thumb and deviates the wrist ulnarly. Treatment for these patients, um, you can start with non-operative treatment for first line management. And this includes rest, NSAIDs, corticosteroid injections, or removable thumb spica splint. Corticosteroid injections are an effective option for 50 to 80% of patients, um, less so in diabetic patients. As far as operative management, this is indicated when conservative management fails. Generally, we offer one corticosteroid injection, and then if symptoms are still present four to six months later, we'll offer surgery. Another tendonitis syndrome that we commonly see in our tests on is lateral epicondylitis. This would be sharp pain at the epicondyle, which is exacerbated by passive flexion of the wrist and fingers with elbow extension. The muscle most commonly involved is the ECRB. ECRB is uh, uh, intersection syndrome, which we alluded to before. Um, this is uh, pain syndrome in the distal forearm at the intersection of the first and second extensor compartments. That's APL and EPB in the first compartment and ECRL and ECRB in the second. Pain will be proximal to Lister's tubercle. Um, corticosteroid injections or tenosynovectomy um, are ways to approach this. And this is commonly seen in uh, patients will report pain on repetitive motions of the wrist. Um, initial, initial management is non-op um, with rest, NSAID, then splinting and extension at 15 degrees. And if it doesn't work, you can go on to surgical release of the second compartment. Uh, another common condition that we see in hand surgery is stenosing tenosynovitis or trigger finger. And this is uh, pathology at the A1 pulley. And it's typically addressed with addressing this A1 pulley either with corticosteroid injections or ultimately A1 pulley release. One form of this that we get tested on and see less commonly is congenital triggered thumb. This is intermittent episodes of catching or locking the thumb since birth, and a patient may not be able to passively extend the thumb and have a palpable nodule of FPL. Treatment here is release of the A1 pulley, but you, the patient may have a nodus node, which you do not excise. So you want to leave that in place. A couple of miscellaneous uh, hand surgery and hand tendon topics um, for ulnar collateral and radial collateral ligament injuries. Angulation on lateral stress greater than 20 degrees of the finger is associated with a poor prognosis in collateral ligament injury. Um, partial tears can be treated conservatively with buddy taping or extension block placement. For ulnar collateral ligament injuries, less than 30 degrees can be treated with immobilization with a thumb spica splint and operative repair for greater than 30 degrees. Uh, for radial collateral ligament injuries, forced ulnar deviation at the MCP and pinch results in pain and ulnar deviation. And you may need an MRI to work this up. Uh, Radiocollateral ligaments of the PIP, 20 degrees of laxity, again, is a poor prognosis and indicates repair may be indicated. Uh, when we, another kind of miscellaneous fact, using a tourniquet, um, two hours is the upper limit of ischemia, ischemia time. You need five minutes of release or rest for every 30 minutes of use. Remember for PIP contractures, um, We'd want to release the checkered ligaments first, followed by the accessory collateral ligaments, and then manipulation. Congenital clasp thumb is the absence of EPL or EPB with abduction and flexion. Uh, you may be, do a FDS to FDP transfer for spastic clenched fist deformity. And finally, the FPL courses through the scapoid and can rupture as a result of scapoid fracture. It's kind of just a, a nice mix of different... Uh, uh, topics and things that we've been tested on in the past to end it off for you there.
And that concludes our coverage of hand tendons. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.